Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're reading from Luke 4, 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him into an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy New Year to you all. So uh, despite this reading from Luke, we're actually going to take a three-week break from our series in Luke's Gospel. And what we're going to do is we, we might start an annual rhythm of this where we, we find a time in the year, in this case it'll be in the new year, where we go after a topic or an issue that as elders, as leaders, we think is a really important thing to address. And just to be able to do it as a church. So um, we're going to do that today in the next three weeks. And if you are in our main men's and women's ministry, if you're in Abide or if you're in Axios, we'll be going through these same topics over the next couple of weeks. So we wanted to do something that almost all the church should be looking at. Uh, our home groups, of course, if you're in a home group, you'll be doing this as well. And we thought it'd be fun just once a year to step away from our, our kind of normal read through the scriptures, and say, what is, what is an issue that we think is important to talk through and work through together? And so um, we're going to do that starting today. And this year what we've chosen is to talk through something very basic, which is the role of the Bible in our lives, uh, what scholars would call biblical authority, the, the authority that scripture is to have in our lives. And so we want to communicate a view of God's word over these next three weeks that is precisely that, that we believe that this is God's very word given to us, and that we, we're hoping for a response from all of us in light of that, that we would be people who cherish this word, who trust this word, who submit to it, who, who uh, are committed to it in our daily lives. People who see this, that this is truth with a capital T. This shapes our worldview, and this is our guide in daily life. And this is our, our daily bread, as we say. This is the thing that we go to, to feed our hearts and minds daily. In short, that we would be people of the word, people of this word. And so we're going to spend three weeks talking about what does it mean to be people of the word? Uh, the reason we're doing this uh, is twofold. One, we think this is just simply a timeless issue that is always important for God's people to consider. But we also think that we're in a cultural moment 
cultural context, uh, meaning in um, Western American Christian culture today, uh, where we see this diminishing role that this book is having in people's lives. That increasingly, even people who maybe attend church or would consider themselves Jesus followers uh, are, are less committed to this word. They trust it less. Uh, they're, they're less biblically literate than ever before. We see this trend, and so we thought, we want to just talk about this together and encourage you all in, in, in a, a relationship with this book that we think is really vital to your life and faith. So um, that's what we're going to do, and um, I get to kick it off this week. And I thought I'd just start by talking through some of the influences that have, I think have happened over, over actually the last couple hundred years, but then contemporarily also, to the diminishing role of the Bible and, and biblical authority in people's lives, okay? And then we'll jump into some passages in a second. But let's just talk through some things. Most of, this, most of these won't be new to you. Um, here we go. I think. Boom. Bang! Bruce, boom! Is the thing on? Okay. All right, there we go. Scripture on trial. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Here's some influences, cultural and otherwise, that I think are impacting the, the, the diminishing role of the Bible in our lives. Number one. Ah, shoot. All right, you guys are going to have to control it for me. Oh, there it is. Uh, let me see if I did that. I did it. Yay! Okay. Uh, one, we've talked recently about post-modernity. This is this massive cultural force in a secularized world where postmodernity is really about the deconstruction of modernity. <laughs> it's about the deconstruction of authorities and institutions and especially the deconstruction of any larger narrative, any larger story that claims to be this is the truth of reality. Postmodernity say there is no one truth. That's just a power grab is all that is. And so when that truth goes away, what Postmodernity holds up is the individual, an individual autonomy, a human being's freedom to choose the reality that they want. Okay, that is the essence of postmodern thought. And, you know, I define my reality, you define your reality. And this has infiltrated the church in our own lives far more than we think, right? Even if you would say, I don't buy the philosophical assumption that there is no objective truth. Um, in daily life, we so often live as postmodern people with this, this is what we do. We say, you know, I'm kind of my own authority. Like, I, I'm going to decide how to live. I'm going to decide the right way to do things. And so what I'll do is I'll pick and choose from various places. It's sort of a cafeteria model view of life. You know, I like this. I'll take some of this. And, but I'm, I kind of decide truth, and I'm my authority, and, and I'm going to do this. And so even when I talk about the authority of Scripture, even that phrase would make a, a, a postmodern person kind of cringe. Authority is just not a great word anymore. I don't like that word. So this is kind of the air that we're breathing, and it impacts our relationship with this book that claims to be an authority. Another big one has been, of course, the rise of science over the last uh, couple hundred years and the, the growing assumption in people's minds that, that the Bible and science are simply at odds with each other. You can't hold both. I certainly don't believe that, but that's the growing assumption among educated people. And of course, that has come with specific scientific ideas, maybe the, the age of the universe, certainly the theory of evolution, that those are you know, fundamentally incompatible with the biblical worldview and, and people's assumptions about how that all can or cannot fit together. And then just a scientific mindset in general, I think, 
that looks out at the world and says, what we can measure, you know, and test is that's what is real. And so you look at these ancient stories about miracles and people walking on water and bread being multiplied. And we're like, we, we kind of all know now that those things don't happen, right? There's scientific laws that can't be broken. And that's kind of how ancient people sort of understood some cool things that were happening to them. That's how they kind of gave language to that. But we all know now that that doesn't happen is the assumption. I don't buy that assumption, just clarifying fast. Um, uh, and even a scientific approach to the Bible that happened in biblical criticism over the last couple hundred years where people start applying certain methods and based off of their methods, they say this book is unreliable, it's got lots of, um, you know, inconsistencies, it's, it, there's ar- archaeological evidence and all this stuff that's, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting book, it's a helpful field, but it, it, you know, there's a lot that's broken about it. Um, so the attack of science has been, you know, the Bible is inaccurate, right? It's a cultural document, has some interesting spiritual things to say, um, but this is certainly not objective truth. We certainly know better nowadays. That's been a huge one. The Bible is inaccurate. It's unreliable. Uh, that, for me, just so you know, that is not a theoretical issue. That idea took me down in college. <laughs> I mean, I went through this experience of, of going from believing this Bible to all of a sudden being pointed out these things that my view of Scripture was utterly deconstructed in college, and it took years to reconstruct a faith in the reliability of this book. So this, this hits me uh, personally. Uh, two more. Uh, cultural sensibilities, I think, are the big ones today. And what I mean by that is every culture from all time and every place has its own particular and peculiar sensibilities, things that just resonate with them and seem right to them. Uh, and when those sensibilities clash with the sensibilities of this book, uh, that calls into question the authority of this book. Okay, so today, you know, some of the big ones are the, the sexuality conversations that are happening. That have, that have uh, you know, the amount of cultural sensibility, the change that has taken place in the last 15 years is astonishing. And so there's these new sensibilities that people go, this is how it is. And they approach this book, and when it doesn't meet, match those sensibilities, there's a clash. And they go, well, this certainly can't be true then, right? Or sort of a more uh, tolerant view of all people and all faiths versus a book that says, well, there is a, a heaven and a hell, and not everyone's going to this place. That clashes with a cultural sensibility, and it really calls into question in people's minds this book. I think if science calls into question that th- whether this book is accurate, the cultural s- sensibilities say this book is not only inaccurate, it's actually immoral, this book is not a faithful guide to what will lead to human flourishing. Bless you. Um, I just want to point out how incredibly fickle cultural sensibilities are and how quickly they can change. But they feel like this is just the way the world is when you're in the midst of it, right? One more, I think this is probably, practically speaking, this is the biggest one, is consumerism. And we have been raised as consumers. We've been taught to think and live like consumers. And consumers are used to getting the products they want. They're used to getting things fast, cheap, and easy, right? And there's nothing fast, cheap, and easy about this book, okay? This book requires work. It requires a life of committing to understanding. It's written by 66 different authors, uh, you know, 
you know, all these different cultures, oh, sorry, six, six different books, about 30 different authors, different cultures. There's so much work that goes into it. And we pick this up and some of us go, oh, this feels like school again. I'm out of school. I don't want to do school anymore. And so we just saw, you know, I can, I, can, I can Google something. I can, you know, I can listen to a podcast. It's 15 minutes long. I can read a blog and get there. So um, all, all that to say, there's, there's all these things that are eroding uh, our experience with this book such that I think we've come to a place where even people who would um, maybe identify as Christians or certainly be interested in Jesus uh, feel like this book is, is not as trustworthy and reliable as we once thought. It's an ancient, ancient text. It has some good spiritual guidance, but it's not an objective you know, reality for us. And practically speaking, what's happening is people simply aren't going to this book as often as they used to. When it comes to daily life, working through the issues of life, where do I go? What are my authorities? People are going other places. Um, they're going to other books. They're going to blogs. They're going to podcasts. They're going to friends on the really basic issues of life. How do I raise my kids, right? What do I think about marriage? What do I think about money? What do I think about physical appearance? What do I think about death? All these ways, practically speaking, this is not the go-to as much as it used to be. And so there, we may still identify as Jesus people. There's people out there say, I, I'm a Jesus person. We just may not identify anymore as a Bible person. And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks is um, hold this book before us and pr- present the case again <laughs> that this is, this is the word of God. And the goal is that we would walk out of this series all with a renewed appreciation for this, what we have here, that we treasure it, that we commit ourselves to it, that we live with it, we walk in it. And also another goal would be maybe that we feel more equipped to engage in conversations with others about this book as we encounter various situations. So that's the goal. I know that's a long-winded introduction. Um, So I get to kick this off this week. We have three weeks to talk about this topic. And, you know, there's different ways to present the case for this book, right? Um, One way is to talk about the book itself and all the issues surrounding the book. It's reliability. When was it written? Who wrote it? Can we trust the transmission of the documents over the centuries, right? What's the archaeological evidence? What's the historical evidence? And build a case for the reliability of this book. Uh, And we're going to do that next week, all right? But this morning, I wanted to start um, in a different place and what I think is a more simple place. And rather than start with the book, I want to start with the person, I want to start with Jesus, okay? And I want to start with Jesus uh, for two reasons. One, because we've been talking about Jesus. All last year, we spent our our year talking about Jesus. We're in this series on Luke, so I wanted to continue that. But secondly, um, there's a point I I want to make that I think is actually really important, and it's this, that at the very, very center of our faith is actually a person. At the very core of our faith is not a book. It's a person. The book obviously bears witness to the person, but the person is at, is at the deepest core of our faith. And so I want to start with the person, and I want to ask a simple question is this, what did Jesus believe about his Bible? I want to start with the person. And for me, this has been the simplest and most compelling argument for the reliability and authority of this book. And what's beautiful about this argument is you don't actually have to believe everything in this book 
to, to hear what I'm about, the argument I'm about to make, all right? You can, you can say, ah, yeah, it's some good stuff, but I'm not sure if I believe all of it. What you would have to come to is this conclusion. You'd have to say, as I read these documents, especially as I read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not sure I buy everything, but I, I think I'm in on the general story that's told, that there's this guy, Jesus, and he lived and he died, and I've, be- I've become convinced that he was raised from the dead, I believe the basic story, there is a God, he sent his son, his son son died and rose from the dead. If you can get there, okay, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then this won't be compelling. You know, all bets are off. But if you can get to that, I really think Jesus rose from the dead, then that has some really amazing implications. And here's the argument. If Jesus rose from the dead, like if that actually happened, and there's all sorts of good evidence for believing why that happened, but if he rose from the dead, That means he is who he says he is, right? I mean, he rose from the dead. That doesn't happen every day. This guy is who he claimed to be, the son of God. God himself come as a human being. And if if he is who he said he is, then he's going to be right about pretty much everything, right? Like, he has a divine perspective. His, His take on things, I mean, if he really rose, and if he really is who he said he is, then his take on things is going to be the right take on things. That's just logical. And so the question is, what was Jesus' own view of the Bible? What did he believe about the Bible? What was his relationship with the Scriptures? And the argument then would be this, if I want to be a Jesus follower, then it would make a lot of sense that my view of the scriptures would be the same view that Jesus had of the scriptures. Or to put it negatively, it would be a very strange thing indeed if I said, I want to follow Jesus, but in this issue, we don't see eye to eye. Okay? We disagree on this very important issue. I think he got it wrong. That would be a strange thing to say. And so today we're going to ask that question, what did Jesus believe about his Bible. Jesus had a Bible. Uh, it looked different than ours, of course. He had just the Hebrew scriptures, what we today would call the Old Testament. Uh, they may have not been bound in a book, but there were the scrolls that he would have access to that he would have heard read on Sabbath every Saturday. So he has the Hebrew scriptures. And we're going to ask, what did he believe about them? What was his own take on them? And as Jesus followers, do we want to follow him in his view of this book? All right? So we're going to walk through a couple things. I want to talk first about what was his relationship with the Bible, and then we'll see what was his fundamental view of the Bible, and then what was the big implication of that view for him. All right, are you ready? I know we've already thrown a lot at you today. You know, you've had your phones out. It's been so painfully hard, and, um, and now I've talked about these cultural issues. But here we go. Um, let's, we're going to look at these three things. What was his relationship? What was his core view about the Bible? And then what was the implication of that view? All right. So what was his just kind of overall relationship with the Bible? Um, I, I loved Daniel Gaiman's message last week. It was so good on, on uh, adolescent Jesus in the temple, right? And, and what he did, among other things, was he just opened a little window into what it might have been like for, you know, toddler Jesus and then, you know, adolescent Jesus growing up as this Jewish boy exposed to the scriptures and especially thinking in terms of his humanity, right? We know he's God, but in terms of his humanity, what that might have been like. And we got just this little window of the human Jesus who clearly had this unusual hunger 
for the scriptures. An unusual, extraordinary delight in and submission to the scriptures. This boy whose identity was shaped and his mission was shaped by these scriptures. And as you just read through the gospel accounts, it becomes very clear that Jesus has either entirely memorized or certainly internalized, deeply thought about, internalized the Hebrew scriptures. He appreciates them. He respects them. Um, he, they're his go-to. And so I want to look at our, our passage today. We're going to look at a couple passages, this testing in the wilderness. But you find that in, in these times of crisis and trial for Jesus, his fallback are the scriptures. And many of you know this about this story, but this is, you know, being tempted in the wilderness, one of, I'm sure, his first moment of profound crisis and trial. Doesn't eat for 40 days. And then direct assault by Satan himself over the course of many days with these temptations, right? These really core human temptations. And every single time in all three temptations, Jesus responds with these words. It is written, right? It is written. It is written. It is written. And we know this temptation story, but he could have responded so many different ways. Satan throws out a temptation. I hear that, Satan, but what I'm feeling about that is this. You know what, but what makes sense to me, Satan, is instead to do this. But the Son of God himself doesn't do that. In a moment of trial and temptation, he falls back on, it is written. And it is very clear from this story that Jesus had deeply internalized the scroll of Deuteronomy, which is what he quotes from all three times. He has thought long and hard about Israel's experience in the wilderness. It has become part of his own identity and mission. And that's what he falls back on in a moment of crisis. Now, let me show you another one. You don't have to turn in your Bibles yet. Um, the end of his life, there's another profound crisis, trial. We call it the cross. <laughs> his, his greatest moment of... of <laughs> pain and anguish. He's on the cross. This, this first one was the beginning of his ministry, now at the very end of his ministry. And he's, it's the greatest pain he'll ever experience. And what are the words that he cries on the cross? Here they are. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the darkest words Jesus ever utters that we have recorded. But what I want to point out to you today is these aren't Jesus' words. That's Psalm 22. That's verse 1 of Psalm 22. That's the psalmist, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, in his moment of intense pain and grief and sadness, he takes this psalm on his lips and cries it out. Arguably, his very last words are these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This beautiful expression of trust in God. But what I want you to know is these aren't Jesus' words either. This is Psalm 34. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so it's very clear that Jesus has sung and meditated and, and, and internalized the Psalms. And so in his greatest moment of pain, what he falls back on is the Scriptures. And we see this in his life time and time again. It's, it's an interesting question to ask when a person, you know, is going through great crisis and conflict, what's their fallback? Where do they, where do they go? And I think of you, my, my daughters who... Are, you know, at night, they wake up in the middle of the night and they're afraid. Uh, you know, some kids, they have their go-to. They've got their, they've got their banky, you know. They've got their, you know, their little animal or whatever. But there, there's this, they, we fall back on things in these moments. And, and for Jesus, the Son of God, he goes to the Word of God in these moments of crisis, of trial. 
And of course, not just in trial and crisis, but even in other important moments of his life. Like if you look past our passage, the very next passage, uh, beginning in verse 14, this is when Jesus starts his public ministry and he shows up in Nazareth. And he basically unveils for people what his ministry is all going to be about in verse 18. And he does it through the scroll of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me. It's a direct quote from Isaiah. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, etc., etc. In terms of shaping his ministry, he uses the words of the Hebrew scriptures to define himself and his purpose. So all that to say, Jesus has this just relationship where he's internalized it, he respects it, and it absolutely, it's his go-to in times of trial, and it shapes his identity and purpose in life. And so for us today, I think, if we want to be Jesus followers, uh, we would want to have a similar relationship uh, with the scriptures that he did. All right, so that's number one. That's the basic relationship. Uh, number two, what is his basic view of the Bible? What is his core belief about what this is, in his case, these scrolls. What are these scrolls? What's their relationship to God? And I think it, this is, I'm not saying anything you probably don't already know, but his basic view is this. This is God's word. Meaning the words on these pages are the words of God. The words that the human authors wrote down are precisely the words that the creator wanted them to write down. I think that is absolutely his view. Let me show you one passage that brings that up. Go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. Matthew 19, verse 6. Uh, the context here is uh, people are asking Jesus about divorce, actually. And uh, to me, this is the, the most um, definitive passage in Scripture that goes after the issues of marriage, of gender, sexuality, all the stuff that's front and center today. This is the definitive passage, in my personal opinion. Um, but... That's not my main point. Um, what, so they're asking him, is it okay to divorce? And Moses gave you a law of you know, certificate of divorce. What Jesus does is he takes them back to the creation account and says, let me tell you what God's plan for marriage was in the beginning. Verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female, that's Genesis 1, that's basically the, the, the summation of what Genesis 1 is all about, and said, and now this is a quote from Genesis 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So he brings Genesis 1 and 2 together and says this is God's plan for marriage. Okay, that's a whole other conversation. But my point is this, look what he says about God in that verse. He says, the creator made them male and female and then said for this reason. So in Jesus' mind, who said for this reason? God did, right? The creator said that. The problem with that is if you go back to Genesis 2, God was not speaking in that part. The, the narrator is speaking. The narrator is telling the story of Adam and Eve and then just says for this reason, man and father. So tradition would say Moses. So God actually wasn't saying that. Moses was saying that. But for Jesus, that's not a problem at all. <laughs> because in Jesus' mind, where Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so in a kind of an offhanded way, Jesus can say, when, when Scripture says this, I can also say that my Father is saying that. Because my Father is the one speaking through all of Scripture. And if you just kind of read the New Testament, the, the, the different authors all make this general assumption. It's, and it's interesting, kind of the offhanded ways they'll say this. Let me show, show you another one where a human author was speaking, but then the, the New Testament person says, actually, that was God speaking. So this is um, Hebrews 3, 
quoting a psalm. As the Holy Spirit says, and they're quoting from a psalm, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did during the time of testing in the wilderness. Problem is, if you go back to that passage, the Holy Spirit wasn't talking. The psalmist was talking. But the author of Hebrews, of course, would say, well, the Holy Spirit was speaking through the human author of the psalm. There'll be times when God's not speaking and Jesus or someone else say, but he is speaking because the scripture's speaking and the scriptures is the word of God. Or sometimes they'll flop it. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God was the one who was speaking and they'll say, well, the scriptures say this. So let me show you this one. Here's in Galatians, Paul says, scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Quote, all nations will be blessed through you. Well, that was God speaking directly to Abraham. Now Paul says, well, that was scripture speaking through Abraham. Or here's another one, Romans 9. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Go back there in Exodus. That's a direct quote from God that now Paul is saying, well, that's scripture speaking. All that to say, where Scripture speaks, God speaks. Where God speaks, Scripture speaks. Why? All of them are agreed on this. And it's kind of these offhanded ways, just these assumptions they're making that you could pass right over it. But because they all have a view of Scripture, which is essentially this. All Scripture is God-breathed. What we have here is God breathing out his own words through human authors. But in a way that does not annihilate the human authors. So this really is the voice of God, but in ways that does not annihilate the voice of the humans who spoke and wrote it down. Here's again how it's said in 2 Peter. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but here's a great summation of it. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the basic view that Jesus has. I value this book. I treasure it. Why? Because it's the very voice of my Father speaking to me. The words are my father's words. And now that, that's a very different view. Jesus' view is different than I think what many people view today, which is essentially, um, this is humanity's best attempt to bear witness to something amazing that happened, okay? The basic story might be true, but it's a, it's a broken, um, flawed, imperfect book. These people were limited by their cultures and, and, and all of that. And I would just want to put out for you all, that is not the view that Jesus himself had of the scrolls that he had. And so if we're going to be Jesus followers, I think we want to have a view that certainly takes into account the human authors and their cultural context and the historical context and how a certain passage fits within the overflow of God's salvation history. There's all sorts of interpretive understandings, but that aside, we would want to have a view that's Jesus' view, and it's this. These words are the words of my Father. That's why I so deeply treasure it and submit my life to it. So that's, that's the basic view. And I, I think there's a great parallel between Jesus and the Bible. You know, we believe that Jesus, uh, the Word of God, he is fully God who has entered into human history as a, as a full man. He is fully God and fully man. And we have traditionally a, a parallel view about the Bible, that this is both fully God's words and fully man's words. In the same way that Jesus is the God-man. There's a great parallel in those two ways. All right, so that's the fundamental basic assumption Jesus has. This is God's word. And with that assumption, there comes a fundamental implication. And this will be my final point for the day. And here's the fundamental implication. I know this is so like basic, but I think it bears repeating. If the Bible's God's word, here's the fundamental implication. Therefore, it cannot be broken. It is entirely trustworthy and reliable 
and true. Why? Because God himself is always an entirely trustworthy, reliable, and true. I believe this was Jesus' belief about the Bible. Let me show you two passages where I see that, and then we'll close for the day. Turn to John 10, 34. John 10, 34. Again, now another time, Jesus is, is I hadn't really thought this, he, he's, he's arguing with the authorities a lot, isn't he? Um, here's another passage where he's arguing with the authorities. Uh, Jesus has said a big no-no. He said, I and the Father are one. And people didn't like that. They're saying, you're claiming to be God, you a mere human being. That's blasphemy. <laughs> so you claim to be God. And Jesus makes a bizarre argument. And the argument's not the point here. But he basically takes that word God that they used. And he says, well, actually, if you go back to your Hebrew scriptures you'll find that that word God actually has some flexibility even in your own scriptures. There's times where that word can mean different things. And he takes them to a a somewhat bizarre um, psalm. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, in the scriptures, I have said you are gods? Now in the psalm, God is speaking to some of the human leaders of the day who think they're gods, basically, who, who exalt their own authority. And so God is calling them gods like, you think you're gods, but I'm going to take you down. That's the context. But here's Jesus' argument. Is it, is it not written in your law? I have said you are God, uh, you're gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, then what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? His argument is this. If you can call those human leaders back in the day gods, then certainly, surely, the Son of God who God sent into the world, could be that, that word could be used to him. Now, my point is not any of that argument, but it's that throwaway line that he makes in the middle of it. It's almost parenthetical. It's almost passing. Oh, and the scriptures cannot be broken. (laughs) He's arguing with these guys. He's saying, essentially, we all know this is true. The scriptures cannot be broken. So if I can demonstrate from you from this psalm that what I'm saying is true, then you'll have to buy my argument because we all know the scripture cannot be broken. It can't be broken. Literally, it can't be loosed or yours might be, it can't be set aside. It can't be undone. It can't be negated. Why? Because it's God's word, right? And it's almost this, this obscure verse from an obscure psalm. Most of you probably never even read this psalm. You don't remember, what, remember this. But Jesus is saying, even this obscure verse, it cannot be broken. Why? Because it's God's word. All right, one more passage. Um, go to Matthew 5, 17. Uh, same point being made here. And now my point is, Every single part of the scriptures cannot be broken because it's all God's word. Again, this, I believe, is Jesus' own view of the scriptures. Verse 17, uh, the abide women, you guys have walked through this one and wrestled with this passage, I'm sure already, in your Sermon on the Mount uh, study. Uh, Here it is, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Law of the prophets, that equals the Hebrew scriptures, okay? That word abolish is the same word we just saw. To break, to loose, to undo. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I learned that, the old King James, not one what? Jot and tittle, right? Not one jot and tittle will, will disappear from the law. Uh, he literally says not one iota 
which is the smallest Greek letter in the alphabet. It's our, our, our I, right? The littlest letter. He says, not one iota or one, and he says this, he makes a, a word that is probably referring to the Hebrew uh, alphabet, where the Hebrew alphabet has letters, but then they have this dot system. It's not even a full letter, and a dot can change uh, the pronunciation of a letter or, or uh, the, 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 the meaning of words. So it's not even a full letter. So he's saying not even the smallest letter, not even, even half of a letter, <laughs> which, which is say the whole thing. I haven't come to change or null or break or set aside or negate a single minute detail of the Holy Scriptures. I've actually come to fulfill it. And it's, I've come to fulfill the heart of it. I've come to fulfill the spirit of it. I've come to fulfill the letter of it. I've come to fulfill all of it. He goes on, verse 19. Therefore, anyone who set aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others, accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But who practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I, to the Pharisees and teachers a lot, I think we all, some of us, we grew up with this assumption that you've got these Pharisees and they're so concerned about God's word. And Jesus comes on on the scene, he's like, guys, just chill a little bit. Like, relax a little bit. Um, you're, you're thinking about God's word too much. And I don't think that Jesus actually ever does that. I think his point is, you guys have misinterpreted God's word. For all your your detail, and all the traditions that you've built up around the word, you've actually missed the heart of the word. But his issue is never you're thinking too much and you're too serious about God's words. No, no, you've, you've misinterpreted. You actually don't know the scriptures, ironically. But Jesus felt passionately about the scriptures in all of their detail. So all that to say, it's God's word in every part, to the letter, to the, to the jot and tittle, to the yoda and the, the, the rough breathing mark and the dot, it's God's word. It won't be broken. And again, I, I think we're in a context right now where there's a lot of people who, um, who are approaching this book and are saying, some parts of this are authoritative and others are not. Some are binding, and others are not. Um, and we generally pick what we like, <laughs> right? We all do this. But like Israel, you know, God rescuing Israel as slaves in Egypt and, and defeating the powers of, of Egypt, bring that, yes, absolutely authoritative. Jesus leading Israel into the land and conquering nations through Israel, that can't be, God would, that can't be part of God's plan. That's, that's not authoritative. You know, David and Goliath, yes, absolutely these prophets that speak about judgment, you name it, what it is. But what, what is happening now is we're getting people, we're getting a Bible within a Bible, essentially, right? You've got this book, but then there's the core that's authoritative. And in many cases, that's the red letters for some people. This, this is authoritative. Everything else is kind of up for grabs. And I just want to say, Jesus himself did not think about the Bible that way. Every jot and tittle, every, it will not be broken. All right, so there it is. What was Jesus' own view of God's word? It was this, that it is utterly trustworthy, utterly binding, utterly faithful to reality. He cherished it. He meditated on it. He submitted himself to it. He found his own identity and mission in it. He never undermines its authority. He never contradicts it. He never breaks it. He accepts the stories. He accepts the miracles. He accepts as historical, the stories, even, I mean, I could take you to another passage, even the story of Jonah, this crazy story about a guy getting eaten by a fish. And we look at him like, that's got to be just a parable. It's right, it's just a parable. You, there's, 
it is quite clear from, that Jesus actually thinks that story is historical. Certainly it has a moral point to it, but he thinks it's historical. He accepts the whole thing, kit and caboodle. This is a great, I think Kevin DeYoung uh, has some great things on this. He says it well. It's impossible to revere the scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. And so I want to leave us with the question, what is our own view of the Bible? Uh, in, in a cultural moment where people will be increasingly, want, they'll be wanting to hold on to Jesus, but let go of the Bible. Okay, that's the moment we're in. And I just want to say again, it would be a very strange thing for us to say, I want to follow Jesus. I just don't see eye to eye with him on, on this issue. Okay? Or to say it positively, I want to follow Jesus. And because I want to follow Jesus, I have his view of this. I believe this is God's word. And that's, that's, on, that's the posture that I want to have in this culture is, is not first and foremost, I'm a Bible person. Um, I think there's a lot of Bible people that we've met that we probably don't like. You know, I'm a Bible person, um, first and foremost. Um, and and um, I want to be a Jesus person. But because I'm a Jesus person, I'm a Bible person. I don't see how it can be any other way. And so that's why I start with the person. I think the person comes first. And because of the person, the book comes as well. You can't have one without the other. So I have an invitation for you on the front end of this new year as we are engaged in commitments to the glory of God. Um, And the invitation is to having a regular time in God's word, to let this be truly your daily bread, the thing you go to. This is your bread and butter. This is is where you go to find meaning and guidance and encouragement in your daily life. And so I wanted to offer you some Bible reading plans in this new year and ask you to commit to one of those. Um, I'm going to show you two online plans for those of you who were able to get on your phones earlier. You may like to read through your phone. There's so many great plans, so I don't want to spend the time talking through all those. But I'll mention two that if you don't have a starting point, these are great. I think Read Scripture, that's the Bible project. Read Scripture is a plan, and version. They'll have a host of different kinds of plans on them that you can go to. Just go to your app store, type in those words. You will find um, some great options, okay? So if, if that's what you want, do that. Uh, and then I wanted to offer you a grace reading plan, and that's one that I created this week. Um, it is three days a week. The reason it's three days a week is because many of you are already in a midweek Bible study, and often those take probably two days of study and reading. So this fills in the rest of your midweek. It's very manageable. It's only um, one chapter a day. Occasionally, I might do half a chapter. Occasionally, I might get to a chapter and a half, but almost always one chapter a day. And what it is, is I'm taking you from Genesis through Revelation, okay? You're actually going to start this week. If you start it, it'll start tomorrow. It's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, I'm going to give you three psalms to start. You're going to kind of start light. It's going to start easy. Um, And then, um, but it's going to take you through the story. This is like through the Bible in a year, but you're going to obviously miss large portions of it, but it'll give you all the key moments. And if you have never read through the Bible, this would be a tremendously manageable way to do that. Um, So what's going to happen is... um, Today at noon, you're going to get an email from Grace, from me, and it will have a link um, 
with, with this reading plan, and you can link it up to your calendar. If you have an iCal, if you have a Google Cal, you can click on the link, it'll just link up. So you wake up tomorrow morning, and at 7 a.m., it'll tell you to read Psalm 23 or whatever it is. Um, so if, if that works for you, do it that way. Or uh, I put some on the, under the flat screen as you go out. I just have a list of, of dates. It looks like an Excel spreadsheet, basically. It's just dates and passages. But if that works for you, I want to encourage you. But whatever you choose, I would encourage you, commit for two months to this. Commit two months to this. Uh, if doing this is tremendously hard, find another person to do it with. Have some kind of relational accountability. Maybe even talk about it once, once a week together. But how good would it be um, for us to be people of the word because we're Jesus people? That's the encouragement this week. So let me pray for us. Uh, pray for uh, hopefully this journey uh, that we'll be on in God's word this year, and then we'll sing to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as Mark said so beautifully, we, we want to be people this year who are all about your glory, who are about your kingdom. And Jesus, we want to we want a closer walk with you as we sang. We, we want to know you more this year. We want to experience you more deeply, understand you more deeply. And um, being in your word is the, is the best way to do that. And it's such a practical, doable way. And so I, I pray that you would give us a, a renewed hunger and thirst uh, for your scriptures. And not just that, I pray that you'd speak to us through the scripture. As we, go to your, as we go to the word each day, we would not go simply to read a book, but we would go to encounter a person. Would you speak to us through your word? Encourage, challenge, confront, renew, restore all the things that you want to do through your word. Do that in us, we pray this year. We offer ourselves to you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.